Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Welcome everyone. In today's episode of CRISPR Cuts, we have with us two NIH scientists, Dr. Mark Cookson and Dr. Michael Ward. Both of them work in neuroscience and they have collaborated on this amazing indie project for Alzheimer's and related dementias that we'll talk about in the podcast later. So first of all, let me welcome both of you. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Absolutely. Let's maybe start with an introduction. For both of us, could you tell us about your professional background and what your group currently works on? Maybe let's start with Mark. Yeah, sure. Um, So I did my PhD back in the UK quite a long time ago now. And actually, I was working on cultured astrocytes. So I've always had this interest in using cell biology to address neuroscience problems. Over the years, that's grown into an interest in human genetics, initially actually in ALS genetics, and then more recently in, in Parkinson's and, and related disorders. The main tools that we use in the lab are a mixture of, of high-content molecular approaches like RNA sequencing. We do some animal models, but I think increasingly iPSCs and iPSCs that have been modified have been really the backbone of the cell biology that we do nowadays. Okay, thanks. Michael, maybe you can go next. Sure. So I'm a neurologist uh, at the NIH and actually did my fellowship in behavioral neurology, which is a subset of neurology that focuses on patients with neurodegenerative disorders. So here in the clinic, I see patients with these disorders, oftentimes who have familial mutations. And my lab that I also run here focuses on the basic mechanisms of how those mutations drive disease. So we've gravitated toward stem cells as a model to study the cell biology of these gene mutations because we can differentiate stem cells into almost any disease-relevant subtype, ranging from neurons to glia to muscle. And it's been a super powerful tool because now with the advent of CRISPR-Cas9 engineering, one can either take a stem cell line from patients and then make an isogenic control by correcting the mutation, or like what we're going to be doing in the Indy project, introducing disease-associated mutations into a stem cell line to create perfectly matched isogenic series to study how those mutations affect upstream cell biology. So it's been a really, really neat thing to both have an academic lab focus on these mechanisms and then be able to, with Mark, lead this initiative that's going to generate these tools and data sets um, that I think is going to enable lots of really cool research down the road. Sounds great. Uh, and since you mentioned the Indie project, we can kind of continue with you. You spoke about it a little bit, but can you elaborate on what exactly is Indie? Sure. And Mark can chime in here with additional stuff. Maybe we can probably just weave these together because he can maybe give a little bit more of a history about that program and the structure and how it fits within other efforts at the NIH. So really the concept of Indie is that usually at the beginning of a project that involves iPSCs to study the effect of the mutation on, on biology, usually that project starts in an academic lab where the group will either obtain a line from a patient or they'll generate a mutant line themselves. And that process can take a year or longer. And sometimes things can go sideways, especially if a group isn't used to doing their own engineering. 
So it's a pretty inefficient way to start a project. And then also, we really don't have too much foundational data about how these mutations alter a cell's biology. It's just usually not collected or shared in a way that's easy for other investigators to access. So really what Indy is trying to do is to generate very high quality iPSC lines that harbor mutations across a range of adult onset neurodegenerative diseases with dementia as a component or Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And then in the second phase, to characterize baseline biology of disease-relevant cell types such as neurons using a variety of different omic platforms, and then to create a data repository of those cellular phenotypes to share with other investigators worldwide. Mark, what else might you add to this as kind of an overview? Well, I'd, I'd expand on, on something that I think you, you said very briefly, but I think bears some thinking about, which is why do this in this direction and not the, the thing that you're saying, which is take a patient line, which we know that person has some increased propensity disease and then go back to the isogenic wild time. And the reason for that for me is that otherwise it's almost impossible to think across diseases, right? Because each person has their own unique genetic background. And so you can make comparisons A to B, but you can't necessarily make them for C to D for a related disease. And that thinking is, for me at least, is driven by something that might not be immediately obvious to everyone, but is something bothering me for a long time which is that there isn't usually a one-to-one relationship between genotype and phenotype. In, in fact, that would be very exceptional. So, so let me give you an example. One of the strongest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease is the APOE allele. So APOE2 is protective, APOE3 is, is neutral, APOE4 is, is risk. And if you have your APOE4 homozygote, you have a much higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. However, in a recent GWAS study that we were involved in, that my lab was involved in, led by Sonia Schultz at NINDS, APOE4 is also a risk factor for Lewy body dementia. And so, you know, the difference between Alzheimer's and Lewy body dementia is not trivial, both from the, the pathology and the symptomatology. So that says that one gene can be associated with multiple outcomes. Other examples of this would be the CNINOV72 expansion mutations that were found by Brian Trainer. Those can be in the same family, either frontotemporal dementia or ALS, and so on and so on. And so what we call the disease is, is usually it's either something to do with the history of how it's found, where the symptoms are located, so neuroanatomical, something about the pathology perhaps. But that isn't necessarily what the biology is telling us. The biology might be telling us that actually groups of genes are are more similar than the names we use to describe the diseases might indicate. And that, for me, is the the genesis of Indy, right? So stop worrying about what the genes are called, what the phenotypes are called, what the diseases are, and start thinking about them at scale across all of them. And the only way I think you can do that in a really rigorous way is to start from a consistent reference, well-behaved lines, as you were saying, Michael, and put in all of the mutations that we can get into the line and and look at them all equivalently using the same sets of readouts and, and see whether the phenotypes at a cellular level match up with what we think as you know, what we use as disease labels. And my suspicion is that we'll see some really interesting uh, results along the way. That's really great, Mark. There's a saying actually in 
medicine, that the pathologist always has the final word. And, and sometimes I'm wondering now if we should change it to maybe the geneticist always has the final word. And one of the reasons here is that we're starting to see that in the clinic, sometimes we're pretty lousy at predicting what the actual underlying gene or pathology is going to be present in that given patient with a clinical phenotype. And I actually think Alzheimer's is maybe a great example of this. You know, people used to think that Alzheimer's was defined by the presence of A-beta plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. But now we realize that up to 40% of patients with Alzheimer's disease, pathologically confirmed Alzheimer's disease, also have aggregates of this other protein, TDP43. And TDP43 has been classically associated with a different subset of neurodegenerative disorders, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and frontotemporal dementia. And now we realize that a lot of Alzheimer's patients also have Lewy body pathology, which is, was traditionally thought of as another disease. So here we have this pathologic mixture, admixture of different pathologies going on in the same patient oftentimes, and yet they'll receive kind of one predominant clinical and or pathologic diagnosis. We now recognize that some of these genes implicated in one disease can also change your risk of another seemingly completely different disease. One is the classic gene is progranulin, which has been historically associated with frontotemporal dementia and is now being seen in GWAS studies for Alzheimer's disease. And I think that this really drives home the point that our goal is really to try to find mechan disease mechanisms that are going to lead to treatments for patients. And this artificial siloing of diseases, as I think sometimes hindered progress and hindered cross-fertilization between fields. And so Indy is one project that can potentially help break down some of those barriers and potentially seed new ideas and potentially drive new therapies because of its design, because it's truly cross-cutting in nature. That's very true. When I read the paper, it was just so fascinating to see, I mean, not just the number of genes that have been edited to make these lines, but also uh, just knowing that there are these many number of contributors and maybe not even to one single disease, there's some overlap across neurodegenerative diseases. So it totally warrants a project at that scale. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned before, Michael, was that there wasn't a possibility to look into this before or there it hadn't been done. So what was the main challenge? Was it largely related to editing? Has CRISPR been, the availability of CRISPR kind of improved the chances of making models like this? And maybe just speak to what this technology has done for the field. Well, I might just kick this over to Mark because I, I think there's two things that happened. I think that the time is ripe technologically to do this because of real advancements in, in stem cell biology and culture as well as CRISPR-Cas9. But, but actually, I think that maybe the bigger hurdle has been how to organize and fund such a project like this that doesn't really fall into something that a single academic lab would do and something that sometimes hasn't necessarily worked so under, under traditional extramural funding mechanisms. So, Mark, I wonder if this might be an opportunity for you to talk a little bit more about the Center for Alzheimer's and Related Dementias and maybe its role in terms of enabling projects like Indy to move forward. Yeah, sure. I'll give you a little bit of context here. So, so we started thinking about doing things like this in my academic lab, I would say about four or five years ago, when CRISPR was really starting to get more readily accessible. We made a series of, of isogenic lines for one particular gene, leucine, which would be kinase 2, that we've studied quite fairly heavily. And it took one 
incredibly hardworking staff scientist. I would say about three years to make 14 isogenic lines, and we, we just published that in a very small journal, stem cell research, a small report in, in that journal. And, you know, some of the things we found out along the way were it's actually really hard to do some edits, some are easy, some are not. It's hard to make sure that you don't have off-target effects. It's hard to make sure that you don't lose isogenicity by acquisition of uh, chromosomal regions. You can very easily, very, very easily have what looks like a homozygous edit, whereas in fact what you've done is you've edited one allele and lost the other, so you get loss of heterozygosity at the locus itself. And so this we stumbled along with this, and we got there in the end. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it was a lot of effort to, to do just one gene. So zooming out a little bit to Indy and what's happening here. So as Michael mentioned, we were very fortunate to be associated with the Centre for Alzheimer's and Related Dementias, which is a new effort by NIH to really address the problem that Alzheimer's and Related Dementias are going to be one of the biggest reasons that people die in the next century. Um, currently, cardiovascular disease and cancer appropriately get a lot of effort. But as we look at how the, the population structure in the West in particular is aging out, although I will say as an aside, that's not just the Western Hemisphere, it's also true globally. Alzheimer's is predicted to be the number one thing that people die with in old age. And so it was appropriately, in my view, recognized that we needed to do something about this. And so the U.S. Congress added money to their NIA budget to support Alzheimer's-related dementias, and they did define what that is. And within the intramural program, we came up with this idea that we would have a center that was really dedicated towards Alzheimer's-related dementias. But importantly, what we wanted to do is get away from the experiment I just described, where one lab does a hugely intensive effort in one gene and generates a small series of reagents that are useful, but it doesn't really go beyond that. And so the concept generally of CARD, specifically of Indy, is to go big, to go across diseases, as we were discussing earlier, but also to apply technologies that are ready, really, at a, at, at a good scale. So for CRISPR now, I would say it's really matured in the, in the terms that just the time that I've been looking at it, um, from something that was good but required a lot of thinking and a lot of effort to something where you've got multiple tools, you've got multiple cast proteins, you can now synthesize guides, we've got efficient nuclear fraction protocols, and really can be scaled up and, and built out. So I think that's really driven our ability to do this at scale. The other thing that I think we've learned, and you know, maybe you can speak to this as well, is how critical it was to have a set of people working with us. And so we've had several partners on this. So we've had the Jackson Laboratory, we've had Simplego, and we've had Thermo, um, all doing some edits. And keeping that organized and on track has been really important. And I have to say that, that that's been really quite satisfying. So we've been, I think we've picked well, we got people who knew what they were doing competently, but also that were willing to sort of share information when about how to do edits that turn out to be difficult and, and the like. So really, it's a combination of things, isn't it? It's timing, technology, and people, and of which I'd say the most important is actually the people.
That's a great point. And actually to expand on that, right? Like you mentioned, it's not that this cannot be done in a single academic lab, but the amount of time it takes and just the number of lines that you can achieve, even if you have really good expert people working in the lab is very different. So as you mentioned, Synthago along with others contributed these cell lines and crispr edited cell lines in a very standardized and at scale way with our Eclipse platform. So could you speak a little bit more on what does this standardization mean for the field or how would these standardized models, not just for Indy, maybe even expanding across different diseases, what they kind of mean for the future of neurodegenerative diseases as we are looking at it? I guess I, I could give a crack at this, Mark. There may not be one crystal clear answer to this, but I think that the yield has been burned in the past where individual labs who are new to stem cells and or new to CRISPR-Cas9 make a tool that ends up being partially successful. And then perhaps things that were unrelated to the gene edit were also present. Some of those ending up contributing to phenotypes that were misappropriated to the mutation. And that can happen from lack of standardization, not just in the editing technology, but also in the quality control that follows the editing. And just to give you an example of this, only over the past year has the field recognized that there can be on-target mutations and deletions that mimic what appears to be a homozygous edit, where one allele contains the variant, the engineered variant, and the other allele, because of the way that oftentimes we genotype clones, appears that it has the same edit, that you converted a wild type to a homozygous mutant line. But in actuality, there was a, a large deletion that prevented primer binding, therefore that deleted allele wasn't seen on Sanger sequencing. That's something we didn't even know about until recently. And it scares me to think about how many lines are in use right now by labs that have tremendous phenotypes because they actually deleted sometimes a multi-kilobase region in one of the edited alleles and people are being fooled. So we are exhaustively going through. And that's just one example of the deep quality control that we're applying on the tail end of all this to double check to make sure that these lines have what we think that they have and not anything else. And so just some of the QC that's being done in addition to Sanger sequencing or array-based karyotyping, G-band karyotyping for the, the lead clones. In fact, we're doing whole genome sequencing for the lead clones post-editing. And then we're generating a really exciting new tool that was actually a tool proposed by Bill Scarms, our partner at JAX, called a revertant line. And that's going to be something we do in the future. Where we'll actually take a mutant line and then correct that mutation back to the wild-type genotype with the notion that if anything happened during editing that maybe we even missed in the QC, that we should be able to follow that because that revertent line should look like the parental unedited wild-type line in regards to the phenotype that was assayed by the investigator. And so it might be a very, very, we're calling these trio sets, where a trio set would be composed of the parental line, the mutant line, the revertent line, and an investigator could do an experiment with just three cell lines to ask, is their phenotype actually related to the mutation, not something else that happened in the editing and or expansion process. So I, I think that that kind of depth of quality control is really hard to achieve within an academic group because it takes a long time and it costs a lot of money. And, and investigators are obviously 
wanting to get to experimentation as quickly as they can. So waiting another year to do this DPQC, make this additional control line, it just isn't something that's really feasible for most groups. But with a very well-organized project like Indy, with the appropriate external partners who are really expert at doing all this stuff, including doing the QC, that's all being outsourced as well. I think that's something that we can do that before was just really difficult to roll out. Yeah, I think the other thing about standard standardization is, is an interesting question, right? I don't think we want to say that this is the only way you can use IPSC cells in a scientifically valid manner, right? I mean, there's there's lots of space for people to do. I mean, we were talking up front about the alternate route of having a patient-derived line and making a, an isogenic control. I think that's still valid. I really, really think that those are really important experiments that still need to be done. So none of this is meant to take anything away from anything that anyone else is doing. But what it is supposed to do, or hopefully will do, is provide a sort of reference set that other people can compare back to with some confidence. So an example of this is we all know from time to time you've got an IPSC line that, that simply will not differentiate well. It won't grow very well. It'll spontaneously differentiate or it won't populate one lineage or another. And, you know, there are thoughts on why that occurs, perhaps not completely reprogrammed during the, the reprogramming procedure, but it does happen. We really want to know, and we've, we've made some reasonably uh, substantive efforts to know that the lines that we're choosing can make the principal cell types in the nervous system. And that should then allow people to get the line, get the protocol we used and, and replicate that and in their own lab. And so I think that's a, an area of standardization that could be really helpful for people because they'll know, you know, does it behave in the way that it does when it was first generated? And that's really helpful, I think, to know that you haven't seen a drift in the line over time, has that acquired some somatic mutation or, or, or things of that nature. So hopefully what we've done is we've put really good lines in. We've kept an eye on the quality control and that when we're releasing them into the public space, they'll continue to behave as we expect. And I will say that we're not simply sort of throwing the lines out there. We should be able to provide all of that information, protocols and data and the like that allow people to benchmark in that way. That is definitely one of the exciting aspects of this project is that not only is it done at such a large scale, but that it will actually benefit the community where everyone will have access to these cell lines, which have all undergone QC. And so they can just forward their research by getting these cell lines. I was curious about what is the timeline for, since the phase two is still under progress, what is the timeline for when these would be available for the community to use? Mark, I, I hate to overpromise. What I can say is that the majority of the lines on the first parental background in terms of the mutant lines have now been generated and validated with Sanger sequencing. But we are waiting on all of those quality control assays before we are able to then release those lines generally to the public. And so we're very excited by the fact that it appears that we've successfully edited these and so it should be soon, but I'm, I'm wary about giving us precise dates on this just because we, we don't know until we get the quality control back. I'll phrase it differently on like what would be 
your best case scenario of when you would want these to be out uh, feasibly ready let's say not to promise anyone like this is the date it will be available but what would you best hope for early 2022 okay yeah, I, i think so i think so we've spent about 18 months on this so far so we're into you know we're past our first year anniversary with this and, and we've made a lot of progress i think the end of 2021 and into 2022 we should have really good sets of lines available for people at that point we'll also start to generate some of the associated data sets that we plan as i mentioned earlier things like rna seq and the like that we can then set those out over the next couple of years that's our expectation so far we've been pretty on track despite a global pandemic so i'm somewhat confident that we'll be able to do it one of the other things that goes into this is generating a robust distribution system for the lines because the vials of the edited lines aren't the ones that we'll be sending out to investigators that lead clone for each line is going to have to be grown out additional rounds of quality control done and then we have to be able to have an easy way for investigators to identify which lines are useful for their research and request those and that's all being done through a very generous grant from the Chan Zuckerberg initiative directly to Jack's research laboratories to fund the developments of a really nice website so investigators can see what's been made access the associated quality control data for those lines and then put in a request hopefully with a very very easy to use clickable mta is our goal so that investigators can really efficiently request these lines and then it's handled by Jax who has a long history of distributing reagents to the community for example their mice very efficiently very high quality very quickly and so we're partnering with them for this because they're so good at distribution in addition to their genome engineering skills that is great and fingers crossed that that's the timeline that works and everyone would definitely be looking forward to that mark you had mentioned your recent paper and i had seen that just when indi came out i think it came out in a few days after that uh, where you had 14 isogenic lines looking at parkinsons right so is that also uh, going to be are you also looking to make that available for other labs or is that more for internal research no we've made that available ever got further and further into science in general and ipscs in particular i've stopped worrying about what other people are doing and just i've just really tried to make sure that we're being the best citizens that we can in the world and so that set of lines has already gone out to about half a dozen labs and i would say one of them from the UK so they were very polite and they said do you need to know what the project's about and i said no actually i don't want to know because i want you to have them and so they now have them um and are using them i'm not sure what for but i hope it's something good and again from the sort of distribution and logistics side of it those were done on a very non restrictive mta so it really was a, a simple letter of agreement which matters because it didn't take us months and months and months to negotiate that it was, it was very straightforward and very non restrictive in terms of what we expect is we'd love to hear back from people about these lines we'd love to hear that they behaved well but we'd also like to hear if they didn't you know we want to know if there are problems there isn't really a policy on that we just like people to let us know we like 
people to be able to say, oh, actually, this was really useful in validating something else we were seeing or generated a hypothesis. That's really what we're, what we're aiming for. And yeah, we're, we're really living that at the moment and not holding people up to restricting them. I think the only restriction that we, we would prefer is that people don't redistribute the lines. And, and that's less for a sort of academic reason and more for a, a scientific one, which is, of course, one of the dangers of IPS sees, and we mentioned this briefly earlier, is that they acquire somatic mutation. There's quite a lot of evidence now that they can be subject to selection pressure, particularly for pro-growth genes, right? So deletion of anti-apoptosis genes is, is something that people are really concerned about, and I think appropriately. So what I would not want to do is someone have all these lines, a couple of them get a P53 mutation for sake of argument, and then they get sent on and answer and it gets sent on and then after a game of telegraph somebody comes back to us and says these lines are horrendous they're full of cancer mutations and so then we say no actually they're not so we would like to keep the distribution centralized and for those reasons we are sort of keeping a, a track on on who gets them and when but other than that they're fair great that's very positive and great to hear that you are working with such a collaborative spirit where you don't even care what others are doing with the cell lines. And that's, it's really great. Just like Indie and let's say the phase two wraps up soon. Are there other projects in the pipeline on a similar scale or something that's being worked on right now? Anything either of you can speak to that? I'll start. I think we have a defined period for Indie. Well, we actually have two phases planned at the moment. The first phase is, is the engineering and generation. And as I said, we're quite a way through that looks like it's going to be largely successful. We'll really measure success by how that's taken up by the neurodegenerative disease community. Yeah. Initial data looks good, but let's see. We then will transition into our own data generation efforts. I could see that being iterated over different ideas. We're looking at the moment largely under baseline conditions, but as, as you know, neurodegeneration doesn't really happen in a vacuum, it has other things that, that influence it, such as aging and other non-genetic effects. So it would be really interesting, I think, to start to try and integrate some of those non-genetic effects into some of these models. I think it would be really interesting to look at how cells interact with each other. But obviously, those are bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger projects. So we'll have to see how far we can get with iterating over different ideas. But it's, it's something certainly we're thinking about and discussing at this point. I don't know, Michael, if you had other things that we're thinking about at scale. Yeah, I, I think there's two thoughts on this. I think one of the things I, I'm proud about for the way that we've structured Indy so far is that this can act as a framework or a platform, even for other groups, potentially engineer other mutations that might fall outside of ADRD. And so Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has funded some additional mutations and some neurodevelopmental disorders. ASAP has funded some additional mutations for Parkinson's disease that don't necessarily have dementia as a component. And they're all using this parental IPSC line that India has characterized well, and the distribution will also be through JAKS. And so I hope that as other groups become interested in this, it won't be one-off things where an academician can ask, can you make my favorite mutation? I don't think that that's what we're looking at, but if there are other initiatives that would benefit from using a well-characterized IPSC line, a really robust editing and QC pipeline, and a distribution network. Those are potential partnerships that I wouldn't be surprised if the JAX and or 
NIH would be interested in helping coordinate or facilitate. So that's the first thing in terms of whether this is expanded beyond ADRD. I hope that it is. I think that it looks like there's some promising evidence that it is being taken up by some other groups. And the second thing is uh, just expand upon what Mark mentions for phase two of the foundational data set generation. We've picked a very easy to generate neuron model by overexpression of a transcription factor neurogenin 2. It is extremely reliable and robust. And we've chosen several different phenotypic readouts that we think are shovel ready. These are general approaches like transcriptomics and whole cell proteomics with some more adventurous microscopy-based phenotypes and functional genomics, but only one level more adventurous. We've already had them working in our academic groups and we're now applying them at scale in Nindy. So we think that all of these techniques will generate data that will be usable. But we recognize there's many other things that we're not looking at here. So we've not yet explored metabolomic profiles of what occur in these. We're looking at neurons and yet we know that glia play an incredibly important role. And as Mark says, cell-cell interactions are obviously important for neurodegenerative disorders, and some have proposed even organoid-type models that could be applied. These go a bit beyond the mandate of what we intend for this initial phase two. We really want to generate data. We don't want to get too caught up in a technique that's not quite ready to scale across nearly a thousand cell lines. So we're being somewhat conservative, but, but hopefully using tools that are informative about early changes that happen to the cell biology. But again, I think that this might enable additional large-scale efforts, potentially even housed within, within CARD or done in collaboration with other groups outside of the NIH who potentially request the whole series of lines. And we would be happy to engage in those kinds of partnerships with outside groups as well. That's great to hear. I'm very excited and looking forward to see all the projects that are not even in phase two of Indy and then beyond what, what comes out of it. I have one last question, which is not at all Indy related. It's a random fun question that I ask all my guests. So if you were not a scientist, what would your alternate profession have been? Let's start with Michael. <laughs> that is a hard question because I, I, I feel like a lot of us who go into academia do this because we almost couldn't envision ourselves doing anything else. And I know that there are amazing scientists who, for instance, climb K2 or also are unbelievable artists on the side. I have to say that I'm a bit of a science nerd. I think about this when I go to bed. I think about this in the shower. This is my life. I love this. I would have a hard time envisioning myself doing something else. And in fact, I'm a bit terrified of retirement, probably for that reason. I don't have a great answer for what I would do if I weren't doing research and leading a team. I love this with every ounce of my body. Maybe after your retirement, you could start a science podcast and, you know, keep it going, keep talking about it at least uh, so you don't have to like retire from science. Uh, what about you, Mark? My view on this has changed over the last year with the pandemic. I actually took, uh, Michael knows this, a month with a family and moved to Florida temporarily because we could because we were all working from home, right? And that has made the idea of just kind of sitting around in the sun much more tolerable. So <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I will find a second career. I've always, I think, secretly admired the performing arts. I actually 
you know, for fun, play the guitar a little bit as well. So I don't know, maybe I'll sit on a beach somewhere with an acoustic guitar and just see if I can get a few few dollars for beers. So, <laughs> you know, so nothing too, you know, not headline uh, tours or anything. But yeah, either that I would be cooking. You know, I, I like to cook as well. But I, I don't know that the skill set is that different, right? You heat things up and cool them down. And hopefully at the end you get something that people appreciate. But yeah. Yeah, I hope you'll be sharing that as well, like you're doing with your cell lines. So, yeah, looking forward to see what comes out of your second career whenever that happens. We probably need a podcast follow up on that. But yeah, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time today. I really appreciate this talk and I learned a lot. So I'm sure our listeners will do. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, For more great CRISPR content, please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.